Hello and welcome to the symposium. Today we're joined by Josh. Hello. And it's Symposium 52. And we're going to talk about pseudoscience. And science. Yeah. It's in, funny that you say so, because a lot of the times when we're trying to understand a concept, we need to see what contrasts with it. Mm -hmm. So frequently when people try to approach science, they try to distinguish between what science is and what you know, unscientific, non-scientific or mm -hmm. pseudoscientific enterprises are. And uh, it's, I think, a matter of focus. But in this case, I think it, it is a bit more interesting to focus on pseudoscience, at least for this discussion. Sure. Well, I think most people have a, an idea of what science is and the sort of colloquial meaning. Like if you ask your average person, what is science? They'll probably say, oh, it's, you know, physics, chemistry, biology, which are the disciplines within the sciences. But if you are to define what science is in and of itself, it's a, it's a methodology, it's an epistemology, um, it's an approach towards getting information. It's okay. a scientific method, basically. That's what it's shorthand for, science. And so, although you're not necessarily wrong to list some subjects, um, it's not necessarily the right focus, in, in my opinion at least, even though you're, you're technically right. Great. One thing that is important to add is that the concept of science itself has changed throughout the, the ages. And I think that uh, for a long time, science just meant knowledge mm -hmm. or the ep epistemi you know, in the old sense. But now in the English-speaking world, it counts for natural science. Whereas, for instance, some people have said that most, uh, that the notion of science in, let's say, German, it involves both the humanities and the natural sciences. Whereas in English-speaking wor world, the notion of science frequently is used and reserved for natural science as opposed to the humanities. Well, um, if you've touched on a sore spot here, okay. there's... Uh, a psychologist here. Well, to be fair, psychology is an extension of biology, really, at least as I conceive of it. Um, there are the, the social sciences which don't actually use methods that I consider that stringently empirical, um, but there's a sort of spectrum of what to consider as science because you could argue, you know, there's some. There's a discipline known as political science, but really the study of politics, is that really what we mean by science? Like they're trying, it's more talking about the methodology, like they, they use numbers and they try and test hypotheses about how certain things work. So they are applying the methods, but also the reality of the situation is that the level of sophistication of the methodology, and um, it's not a case of, you know, um, less sophisticated is good you know normally i would err on that in as a general philosophy but when it comes to things like data analysis the the more sophistication the more competent you are at, at doing it the less likely you are to be misled by the data that you have and so it's more about your capability to understand the data that you have collected because there are lots and lots of different things like when I did my, my master's dissertation for um, behavioral decision making, which is, you know, behavioral economics in psychology, which is a cognitive psychological field and therefore 
more on the, um, you know, it's, it's more sort of biologically informed than, say, social psychology, which, you know, you could argue isn't as legitimate as a, an aspect of science as some other things. But um, with that, when I did the statistical testing of my data, I ran about eight different tests to test whether my data was susceptible for analysis in the first place. Yeah. So you run all of these, these different tests um, to see whether your data is biased anyway or might be misleading. This is a very general thing, like the, the actual mathematics of it, like um, you're testing for um, all sorts of weird things like um, sphericity and terms that people have never heard of before and you're looking at graphs that look strange and it, it's a, quite a, a procedure to learn it all. Okay. And the way I conceive of, of science more generally is a sort of hierarchy of, of practice. So it's more about the method as opposed to the, the content of what is being said yes. and studied. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You is could it say a, it's a sort of due process. It's a, a due process for truth, yeah. Yeah, in a way that courts can never be. There you go. I've got to inject yeah. a little bit of um, <laughs> political no, stuff in there. But. The reason I say this is because one of the main distinctions that people need to bear in mind when we're talking about thinking is a distinction between truth and justification. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times, justification and truth are not come apart. Mm -hmm. We may have all sorts of beliefs that may be justified, but ultimately false. Mm. So it seems to me that science is most, the scientific method is mostly focused on, on the justification aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Of course, truth is what is the goal. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that there is a sort of focus on the procedure in, in science. And why am I saying this? It seems to me that, in fact, it's, much more prevalent than than the other bit because a lot of the time scientists and people who talk about the researchers they say that i will assume some things i will make these assumptions and i will try to see what follows from these assumptions and uh, i will try to interpret the data i have access to and i subject to test through the prism of these assumptions mm -hmm. so it doesn't seem to me to be an issue so much of saying that these assumptions are infallible, infallibly true, and we never question them. There is, in fact, intense scrutiny of these assumptions. But the, the focus is on much more on the procedural aspect of it, I think. Yeah, and I think that from the outside, people presume, well, uh, when they hear that all research rests on assumptions and that to, to some might delegitimize its work, but the, the point is that they don't necessarily take anything for granted. And it's only when you use a, a plethora of different methodologies and you start getting the same thing with different presumptions, do you start saying, okay, well, maybe we're onto something here. And you know, it's only in the sort of meta-analyses sort of stages where you start refining things down when you're carrying out sort of cutting edge research, yeah. like my research, no one had carried out the experiment I had designed before, ever. So 
you know, I had to come up with something novel. I had a lot of presumptions, um, but that's the only way you can operate. But you just need to have the sort of research methodology chops to be able to identify, okay, here are my assumptions. Here's what I'm bringing to the table. Sometimes, you know, because you're a human being and it's very difficult to spot all of your assumptions, you might miss one or two, right? But that's what peer review is for, yeah. to pick up the slack. And, and so you, you mitigate for them. You design the experiment around controlling as much as possible for these assumptions. Um, but you still have to make sort of informed guesses. You can um, use research to kind of shape which assumptions you are making in designing your experiment. Uh, and you can also do multiple different um, sort of experiments within a single study to test whether your assumptions are biasing the results in any way. So you can change the methodology, and this happens quite a lot where a lot of published papers will run a study one way and then they'll do it a slightly different way, um, and then they'll do it another way um, following up from analysing the data of the first two, and then there'll be a follow-up on that which is looking at a different aspect of it and adding in some sort of extraneous variables and things like that. That's the sort of blueprint that I have in my mind of, of how these sorts of things work. And normally that's pretty powerful because by that point, in, if you've got one study that's got multiple different experiments that's testing uh, various assumptions and you know, you've got a reasonably large sample by that point because you probably sampled I don't know, just a sort of best guess, sort of a psychology style paper would maybe have, I don't know, 120 to 150-ish per um, condition, which is the sort of territory where you start to eliminate the, the probability that the results are a product of chance. Um, you can do a bunch of mathematical calculations, which I've done ad nauseum, uh, to figure out the probability that your data set is is a product of chance rather than yeah. the trends in your data sh set, should I say, not just the data set itself, because you know, it's a product of the world. Yeah, it's not a, pr a, pr a product of chance. Let me just um, restate something I said before because I think that it may lead to some misrepresentation of what, what I'm going to say afterwards. So. I think it's important, what I said before about truth and justification, obviously mm -hmm. a scientist cares for truth. and uh, Not all of them, to be fair. Not all of them. As in, there's a healthy amount of self-interest and, and pride, and there are people who get stuck in their um, research paradigm. Well, let, let us say that I have a very idealized notion of what a scientist is, as a scientist, not necessarily Me. as a yeah. businessman. The, the or, epitome of a scientist. Okay, so no, let, let us say that someone who cares about the science mm -hmm. cares about the truth. It's not. Sure. It is almost the approach of science as having an intrinsically, an intrinsic worth, because for instance, a lot of the times, some people think that a particular research is only valuable if it solves another problem or if it can be used for practical applications. But a lot of scientists, for instance, and in every theoretical discipline, not just, let's say, uh, what natural science, a lot of the times you see practitioners saying that this issue has intrinsic interest for me. 
Maybe uh, people who may be interested in giving me a grant or something won't see it this way and they will demand of some practical applications or for me to present my research mm -hmm. as being a bit more practically oriented and stuff. But there is a kind of intrinsic care about interest about I think, the issue. I think I agree with the sentiment that you, you're, you're expressing here, but yeah. I would characterize it slightly differently okay. in that the, the science aspect is the methodology. That's like the tool. It's like saying the builder only cares about his tools rather than the building that he's built. Like the ends is the, you know, the, the thing that you're finding out in is the exciting part. You're passionate about the actual subject matter. So yeah. when I was researching um, decision making, I wasn't enamored with the methodology. And in fact, it was quite torturous. Um, because of the nature of the experiment I designed, it was very difficult to analyze and I had to do a bunch of equations that were like A4 page long uh, to do it. And, and so the actual science part of it, the, the methodology was a bit of a chore. But what I could find out from going through that is the exciting part, which is very pedantic of me to, to sort yeah. of delineate. But um, that's what science is all about, is being very pedantic about minuscule details. Um, the same applies to philosophy. <laughs> oh, I know, yeah. yeah. But what I want to say, though, before is that it seems to me that a lot of the time an issue with us, not an issue, a feature of people who are interested with science is the questioning mentality. And the mentality that is a bit sort of skeptical of certainties or alleged certainties. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I draw the distinction between truth and justification and come back to it again and again is because it seems to me that a lot of the times, a lot of the times, not always, unfortunately, I think there are some bad cases, but a lot of the times I think that there's a healthy element of humility in natural science and in conducting experiments because, because by the meticulous procedure of becoming clear about your assumptions, about the data you subject to scrutiny, and about your experiments and all these bits, you're sort of saying, well, these are all my... You're sort of making it easy for someone to see where things went wrong, if course, something yeah. goes wrong. So well, there's an element of trying to be, be a member of a community of thinkers, in which case you may add something, but you, if you add something, it's not necessarily in the way that you, you know, you solve the greatest equation, you can show where something is wrong. Well, there's, there's a presumption of human fallibility that's integral to all scientific work yeah. in that, you know, even the best intentioned person who's uh, the brightest mind in their field can make methodological mistakes or bring presumptions to the table that will negatively affect the results and what inferences you can draw from them. And this humility is essential. Yeah. Like when, you know, when I've published research, I kind of almost over-egg it a bit. I almost err too much on the side of, of caution um, which I think is better than the, the inverse in that I, I try not to read too much into data because particularly 
um, to kind of articulate it from the inside view. I spent about 500 hours doing my master's dissertation. Um, and that's a lot of time to invest in something. At the end of it, you want to feel like it's contributed something. You want to feel like I did some good work here. You don't want to think, oh, maybe it's all, you know, basically a load of rubbish. Yeah. Um, which is, is a bit flippant. But, you know, it's a very difficult thing because you become emotionally invested. There's a sort of sunk cost fallacy involved in there where you want to believe the data, but you know um, that you, you shouldn't necessarily just accept it at face value because that's dangerous. That can make you um, sort of delusional and think that you've, you're, you're perfect as a, a methodologist and you've not made any mistakes. And so there's, there's a great effort that at least uh, was, was put on scientific education when I was taught to teach that humility, um, which is no easy thing to teach, but they, I think it was something that was sprinkled throughout and, it, and there had already been the replicability crisis in the sciences and that was a theme throughout a lot of my lectures. And they were talking about all of these mistakes and how our understandings evolve throughout time and I think that's very important because looking at the human understanding of ourselves, basically, over time is very interesting because we've been we've held lots of different false presumptions about the nature of our own thought before and, and things like that. And when you look at it um, over a sort of span of history, say you're looking at 100 years of, of scientific research in a specific field, then you realise, wow, you know, we've come a long way. Um, yeah. And if you follow along with it chronologically, there's also this element of um, you start to feel invested in, in the theories that you're reading about. And I, this is something I found with philosophy as well. There's a sort of sunk cost fallacy going on there whereby the more you read something, the more you believe it, even if um, what you're reading is no more or less true. It's just that you've spent a lot of time, there's an emotional attachment there, which you want to avoid. Because if you start getting emotionally attached, that's when you get into the realm, start, you know, unintentionally developing yourself some pseudoscience. Yeah. And um, the, the main problem here is that you can start getting these attachments when you're going through the history of, say, a, a specific discipline and you think, oh, this, this seems true. Like, I'll, I'll get to like the 1970s uh, in some sort of cognitive psychological field and I'll, I'll be like, well, that seems like a perfectly reasonable common sense explanation for that phenomena. And then you get on to like 2006 and it'll be like, oh, yeah, this experiment basically came up with results that you couldn't possibly get if this was true. So it's, it's like a, a sort of irrefutable refutation. And then you're like, oh, wow, that really shook my belief in, in you know, my in judgment. particular theory, yeah. Yeah, and it, that's just when you're being taught it. It's not even by the time you're actually a practitioner. And so there's something quite interesting about that, I think, that the way it's taught now um, almost makes you experience the mistakes that researchers of the past would have made yeah. um, by getting you invested in the narrative of the progression 
of science. And because it does that, it kind of is like a meta-narrative of the plight that you as an individual researcher, when it becomes that time to do so, are going to go through. So let, let us try to pinpoint some things about the notion of science and the notion of pseudoscience. It seems to me that when people approach the first, the mm -hmm. former, the notion of science, they can take several approaches, but two stand out. One has to do with the, with the discipline. So for instance, they can inquire about science as you know, physics or astrophysics or biology or chemistry. Psychology. Or psychology. That's uh, going after a particular discipline. The other focus of the notion of science has to do with a method. And we will talk about it a lot because I think that it has to do a lot with, um, with uh, pseudoscience, science and pseudoscience. And I think it's called the demarcation problem of the problem of demarcating or discerning between science and pseudoscience. And we need to touch upon this because uh, we've, we haven't spoken about it yet. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that there are several approaches of accounts of what pseudoscience is. Especially in the philosophy of science, there is a debate about you know, what consists in scientific method, what is pseudoscience, and there is a very, you could say, almost esoteric debate that I think is very narrow and we don't have to get into it so, mm -hmm. so much. But we can approach pseudoscience in a more broad sense. And I think that's important to do so. And we could talk a bit what is pseudoscience, generally speaking, which according to approaches within that esoteric debate, we're not going to be that sophisticated. And some people will say, well, that's not exactly pseudoscience. According to my theory, it's not exactly pseudoscience. Or what you can't as scientific there may be a bit pseudoscientific or whatever. I think it's important to keep things a bit simple. Sure. And focus on pseudoscience in a broad sense. And also that contrasts with science and scientific method in a broad sense. So generally speaking, what is it that comes to mind when someone talks about pseudoscience? And why do we need to draw the distinction between both? Why do we need to demarcate between mm -hmm. science and pseudoscience? Well, I think the, the first thing I need to address, um, I'm not sure if you want to touch on this later, but it seems like the most obvious immediate thing for me is where I draw the line. Because where you draw the line informs what you consider pseudoscience and you know it justifies that demarcation so would that be okay? Yeah, we'll, we'll go there in, in just a moment. But the okay. question is, why do we feel the need to demarcate? Because, for instance, I'll, I'll tell you why I'm saying this. Because natural science right now has achieved a sort of symbolic status in our society. It's in a way that it didn't... It was just not the case, let's say, 20 centuries ago or even 10 centuries ago. And I've heard it being said that pseudoscience is a non-scientific approach or theory that is presented as scientific. So essentially, it is scheme suiting. There's certainly an element that of that. Yeah. Um, 
So these these sorts of people who were trying to say that you you've got these telekinetic powers, they relied on trying to to sort of skin suit science to earn legitimacy. But it's not the only kind of pseudoscience. I, I think that that was a bit more deliberate and malicious. I think that things can also step into the realm of pseudoscience unintentionally. Yeah. Like there are, you know, academics that are practitioners of what I see as pseudoscience. It's, it is almost a bit of a weaponized and, and political term in a sense. And it depends what kind of school of science you come from. Um, that informs where you draw the line in terms of discipline. You may even agree on um, how you draw the line and what the criteria are, but the interpretation of and the execution of that demarcation um, is very contingent on how you personally perceive the legitimacy of certain scientific disciplines and claims and theories and the likes. I want to say this because I want to re stress this because I think in any society where something assumes symbolic power, mm -hmm. there are people who try to present themselves as standing for it. So because science has such an important status in our society, there mm -hmm. are many people who try to present their practices and theories as scientific. It's similar to um, how Marxists and, and progressives use the language of liberalism. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's skin suiting. Mm. I think we have made the case. You can definitely watch Contemplations, <laughs> Debate Part 1, Part 2, and Part 3. And just watch Contemplations more generally. <laughs> Sorry, had to do it. Okay, so, uh, no, by all, by all means. But at the end of the day, I think it has to do with the dangers that this presents us with. Some of the times it, ha it can be unintentional. Uh, I, I agree with you. And in fact, I think most of the times it may be unintentional. Yeah, well, it's... It's not an easy thing to do to be a scientist yeah. in that not only is it a lot of hard and thankless work for the vast majority of scientists in that they're, they're slaving away, doing very detail-oriented work that's very cognitively demanding and might be publishing it to only be read by a couple of hundred people. And yes, but um, I don't think that pseudoscience is bad science. No, would but, you say because it seems to me that what you are saying is by people who are who are scientists, yeah, and they didn't practice their science well or effectively. Well, it, obviously, there's an element of that in that you know, if they were testing it properly, then it, it isn't. It it would be science, but sometimes there'll be theories and presumptions and their approach to science that. They, they may actually believe that they're approaching it scientifically, okay. but they're not embodying the methodology or they're testing presumptions that rely on other assumptions which are unfalsifiable. And so they can still stray into that territory, even though it's sort of not what I would consider pseudoscience proper, right? Yeah. It's not like um, Scientology, for example, where they're me measuring organs and things like that. Like that's, if you want to use a, a sort of standard of pseudoscience, they're like, oh, put, you put your, your finger in this machine and it tells you what's wrong with your mind. Um, I'm not even sure that's what they do, but that, that sort of thing is sort of the um, platonic ideal of pseudoscience. Yeah. 
which is a weird way of putting it. But. Okay, so I think it's important to talk about the demarcation problem because we live in complex societies and we are called upon to make all sorts of decisions in all sorts of fronts. And a lot of the times, because science has such a symbolic status, we tend to li- some 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 people tend to listen a lot to what people who are scientists or presented as scientists say. So ultimately, you could say that on, on a very let's say broad level, it has to do with decision making. If we are let's say not able to discern between science and pseudoscience, to a very large extent, we are going to fall victims of let's say, uh, fraud. Mm-hmm. Or we are going to, not necessarily um, fraud in terms of an intentional thing, we could be, you could say, epistemically speaking, defrauded. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.